The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow, the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. During these uncertain times, SunGrow is committed to protecting its employees and getting its products on time and safely to customers around the world. SunGrow has also leveraged its extensive network across the U.S. to distribute face masks to communities in need. Learn more about SunGrow's work at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by CorePower. CorePower is a leading U.S.-based developer of battery cell technology, serving utility, industrial, and mission-critical markets across the globe. CorePower is dedicated to promoting widespread energy storage adoption while maintaining control of the manufacturing process domestically in order to stabilize and protect the U.S. grid. Find out more at CorePower.com. That's K-O-R-E, Power.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. This week, renewables surpass fossil fuels on Europe's grid. This is a first, and they didn't only beat out coal. They beat out fossil fuels altogether. We'll look at what this milestone means. Then, how long do you think that the wind industry has been lobbying in Washington? Go ahead. I'll give you a second. Did you guess the 1970s? Yep, the American Wind Energy Association goes back to 1974, and now with renewables fully coming of age, 30 companies have come together in a new joint lobbying organization. Is this any different, and will they be able to flex new power? Then your view of Texas is probably out of date. Of course, Texas is a wind powerhouse. Now it turns out the state's interconnection queue is almost entirely green. We look at the dawn of big solar in Texas and see how much of that power goes to pull hydrocarbons out of the ground. With me are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, my lovely co-hosts. Catherine Hamilton is the founder and chair of 38 North Solutions. Hi, how are you? I'm great. And here in Arlington, Virginia, our skies are gray, but they are not dark orange the way they are in California right now. So my heart and best wishes go out to those folks and our friends on the West Coast. Oh, yeah. The images that I'm seeing as I scroll through Twitter are so powerful and disturbing. Um, I asked folks on Twitter what we should talk about this week, and someone said, how are you doing? <laughs> how, how, how are you doing in COVID life? How are you doing? I feel like I haven't asked you that question in a while. I'm doing fine. We just started virtual school, so there was some crashing and burning on that front, but I think we're... I mean, the kids are not in the room with me right now, so that's a really good sign. <laughs> you stuck the landing. Yes. <laughs> Jigger Shah is uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. He is the uh, co-founder and president of Generate Capital. Hi, Jigger. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. The real how are you? <laughs> I Look, I mean, you know, my kid is in a loophole. He's still considered uh, daycare. So, um, so we actually have, like, good schooling and all that stuff for him, so... Uh, they have like class sizes of like six people, and uh, you know a lot, a lot more folks are uh, certainly more disrupted than I am. Yeah, I've had this reality hit me that like, oh, this is not going to end for a long, long time. And I found this rhythm, and I created kind of a new rhythm to life that was working for me. And every now and then, it just feels like rinse, wash, repeat. Oh my goodness, is this just going to continue forever? So. That's where my head is at right now. But these conversations are as joyous as, as ever. So let's see where they take us this week. 
So let's talk about Europe, this milestone there across the EU region. So for the first half of 2020, wind, solar, hydro, and bioenergy generated 40% of all the power used in the EU. Compare that with aggregated fossil fuels, they generated 34%. So that's never happened before. That's double the share that renewables have reached in the United States. Even California still has a higher share of fossil fuels than that, uh, 38%, according to the California Energy Commission. Um, Yet a popular thread on energy Twitter that made the rounds here at the Energy Gang expresses doubt about renewables, uh, particularly in Germany, pointing to Germany's still coal-heavy energy mix. So clearly the numbers represent a rapid acceleration in the EU of renewable energy and hopefully continued decarbonization. But let's talk about how important this milestone is and whether there are limitations or caveats. Firstly, Catherine, walk us through what this milestone is. Yeah, so wind, solar, hydro, and bio generated 40%. New wind and solar were 20%. And fossil fuels was only 34%. So mostly coal was down, and that was 18% fully. Now, demand is down. It's not growing in Europe. Um, Remember, there are 27 countries in the EU. They're all in very different places. And we can talk about what those are because it's not monolithic over there. Um, But it's a pretty big deal. Gas generation was down by 6%. And folks are saying, you know, part of this is because of policies that have been put into place. And certainly the countries that have more renewables have more consistent policies for renewable energy and for carbon emission taxes. Uh, But the other thing is that COVID really did uh, speed things up, they think, by a couple of years by by having that kind of inject. Um, And I would just mention, we were talking about uh, everything here being COVID land. You know, when I talked to my friend Gerard Reed about this, he was on his way to play in a football match. So, you know, he he said, we're open. <laughs> we, we are, we're careful, but we're open. And, and that makes a huge difference, too, as to how they're moving forward. So, Jigger, how much of this is a COVID thing and how much of this is renewables flexing their muscle? So I think we start with, you know, that we created feed-in tariff programs and other support programs because we surmised that variable renewable energy was something that could take market share on grids, right? And we were arguing this when our market share was 0.1%, and then it was 0.2%, and then it was maybe 1%, right? And so now we're in the first time, we're at a place where we have, you know, in some ways saturated some of the grids, right? And there's an argument around whether we've saturated this grid. Now, it's the same argument, by the way, that Texas is having about wind, and California is having about solar, with the recent sort of blackouts, which were not really blackouts, but that's fine. And then we're in a situation now where people are starting to say, like, for this next phase, as renewables continue to dominate, what is the right mix? What is the right feature set? What is the right um, sort of Uh, paradigm that we should be going through? And what changes do we expect from the way that grids operate, the way that subsidy programs are structured? You know, all of these things are um, being reimagined because of all the success we've had in Europe and other places. This is not necessarily tied to decarbonization, however. I think it's important to separate the two things. So you have a lot of countries that have a lot of renewable energy, But in a case like Germany, you still have, while you have seen a significant double 
digit percentage point drop in uh, coal generation, you see a lot of coal being used on the grid when the wind generation drops down, for example, or the sun sets. And in the UK, for example, we saw the three months from April through July, no coal generation on the UK grid. But what you saw is natural gas dominated. So you still have a heavy fossil grid, even though offshore wind and onshore wind are playing an important role in the UK. This means that most European countries are not on target to meet their decarbonization goals under the Paris Climate Agreement. And so it is showing that we can have a lot of renewable energy on grids and manage the grids effectively, but it's still not telling us a decarbonization success story, it seems to me. One thing I think we need to look at that is a really big milestone is that Vattenfall just built a new coal plant in Moorburg, Hamburg, Germany. And it was supposed to be the best technology out there. It's 1.6 gigawatts. It was doing CHP. It turned out they couldn't get their local heating network permit, so they weren't even able to do that. You know, they have these uh, carbon emission taxes, which means you, if you emit, you have to pay carbon credits. And because of the cost of this plant, they're shutting it down. It is brand new, and they are shutting it down. That is a huge milestone. You also have a very different situation than the UK. Basically, the UK also killed coal through their carbon credit structure too. So I mean, they were able to do that. But there's also the issue of natural gas. You know, the Nord Stream gas pipeline from Russia is really causing a lot of issues between Poland and Germany, especially. And Poland is not on track. Their prices are so much higher. They're paying $46 a megawatt hour in Germany, only 26 megawatt hours for, for power. So there are a lot of reasons to look at natural gas not really being something that's going to be long-term sustainable. And the fact that they are, with consistent policies, a lot of countries moving to almost full renewables. So the one thing that they're lacking that I think they do need to amp up on is flexibility. And I think you know, digital business models, this sort of thing is going to really help right now. Germany especially isn't great at storage and enabling all of, all of that. But I think customers are going to drive that and it will be able to make up the difference. Yeah, I think that is the the key to this. I think for folks that um, are providing the most amount of criticism, I think they wanted to see a straight line, a linear line that like went from where they were before to zero. And they're saying, you know, where are we on that line? And the fact that that line is not a straight line, and instead of sort of is parabolic in some ways, you know, upsets people. But ultimately, one of the things I think we all have to grapple with is that part of the reason the UK moved away from coal so quickly is that the UK doesn't have much coal. They basically mined all of it out. And so the UK was importing coal starting 10 years ago to be able to feed its coal plants, which is not a great look, importing coal. And so, and Germany, by the way, is the same. So Germany had more coal. And so their coal lobby was quite strong. And remember that one of the most um, prolific places in the world for Greenpeace is in Germany. You know, fully one fifth of all of their members globally are German, right? And, and Greenpeace only gets money from, from individual donors. And so you're talking about a huge political 
uh, issue in Germany where they really did want to shut down the nuclear plants. And they, they had said that back in the 2000s. And then after Fukushima, they were like, we're definitely going to do it. It was a terrible idea. We all said it was a terrible idea. We also said overpaying for all the feed-in tariffs was a terrible idea. And we've had those comments before. But that doesn't mean that Germany isn't on track to shutting off all of its coal and moving to a full renewable grid. It just didn't follow the pathway that was prescribed that like shows the fastest you know, emissions reductions the soonest. Um, but I do think that when you think about the comfort level people have on grid operators using 21st century technologies to be able to manage the grid and provide people with reliable electricity, those muscles have been flexed and proven at this point. And there's really no excuses for Poland or West Virginia, for that matter, around being able to provide people reliable power and assuming very high penetrations of variable renewable energy. Yeah, another thing Germany did that probably wasn't the wisest thing was paying off shareholders to to shut down coal. Uh, Jigger, you've talked about paying people off to shut down coal, but they really didn't need to do that because the economics weren't there for coal, as we've seen with this Vattenball plant. What do you all make of Poland's recent move? So in July, the Polish government said that it would not end up spending on a major restructuring of the coal industry to bail out mining operations and coal plants. Uh, it would invest billions of dollars in between 8 and 11 gigawatts of offshore wind, and it would invest around 40 billion U.S. dollars in potential nuclear projects. Questionable about how those nuclear projects will pencil out given the troubles we've seen in the nuclear industry, but still a major acknowledgement in Poland that they need to move away from the coal sector. Part of that is also COVID related. They've seen, you know, decline in demand for coal, but also increasing ramp up of European targets that are putting pressure on the Polish government. What do you all make of what is happening in coal dominant Poland? Well, it's the same as the conversation that we have about the clean power plan in the US, right? I mean, at some point, even the most ignorant come around. It's not like, you know, the economics aren't completely lined up at some point, right? I mean, as Catherine said, Poland pays almost double for its wholesale power prices than Germany does. And Poland gets renewable energy, they just get it as exports from Germany. And so they're paying for it when they do get it. And so when you think about, you know, where economic development takes you, right, all roads lead through clean energy. On top of that, right, even the Bank of Poland, who you would think would actually be made of coal, has now said that they no longer will do any more coal investing. And so, you know, that was a major announcement this week. And so I just think we're in a situation now where where all of this stuff is leading that way. And in Europe, by the way, you know, all of the COVID money uh, for relief is tied to the Green New Deal there, right? So if Poland wants that money from the EU, they're going to have to show that they can read basic, you know, math. Yeah, that's 1.8 trillion euros in this uh, seven-year budget and green recovery package. And that will be really interesting to see who's able to get some of that. The one thing I think we should talk about, though, is nuclear. Like, so on the one hand, nuclear is one of the largest sources of green energy in Europe, right? I mean, France is uh, green on that little mapping tool that we've seen um, because it's got the lowest you know, carbon dioxide per megawatt hour in Europe. But I think that, uh, or you know, rivaling the hydro folks in Sweden. But on the other hand, the big challenge with nuclear is, you know, like the French nuclear industry is one of the strongest industries in the world, right? And they did try in 2007, 2008, 2009 to export 
that nuclear technology around the world. It failed miserably. I mean, the Finnish nuclear plant that they're trying to build there, you know, was like three times over budget. You know, the the one in Hinkley, I'm not sure has even started construction. I'm not sure it ever will in the UK. And, you know, that's EDF. And so at some point, right, part of the challenge is, is that, yes, technically speaking on a spreadsheet, we could have spent this money more cost-effectively on nuclear probably and gotten more green electrons. But when you think about how bad the technology is for nuclear, even the Chinese that try to just push things through have found that these old school nuclear designs are not easy to do. And so the Chinese are over budget and behind schedule on all of their plants. So I do think that we are going to have to realize that the only way nuclear becomes part of the future mix is through innovation. And those are companies like NewScale or Oaklo or others that, you know, we were probably 15 years too late in terms of funding, but they are probably going to be around in the 2030s as solutions for us to look at. Yeah, interestingly, the Green Deal there in Europe uh, has focused almost entirely on deployment of renewables and efficiency and has not devoted any money to nuclear R&D. So clearly not on the agenda there in Europe. Well, it's one of those things that really is, is, is a commentary on energy innovation, too. Remember, we've talked about this in the podcast before, all energy innovation occurs technically in R&D, let's say, in labs, maybe in the United States. But all cost reductions via deployment-led innovation happens in Europe, right? And so whether it's offshore wind or onshore wind or solar PV, Europe is the one who overpays for it and then brings the cost down and then lets us, you know, sort of come in later. They're doing it with electric vehicles too, where EV sales are like 9% of total sales this year. And here it's like 3% of total sales. And so... It's one of those things that if if Europe doesn't do the deployment-led innovation for nuclear, will the U.S. finally pick up the ball and decide to innovate on something on the deployment side and and then export that technology back to to Europe? I mean, we'll we'll see. But I, I mean, nuclear is in that weird place where Europe is not going to overpay for its deployment. So, Catherine, any other missing pieces related to Europe as we look at this milestone? Yeah, I really think that they need to create better space for storage, flexible resources, demand-side resources, digital um, ways for consumers to participate, because I think that can make up the difference as much as supply-side generation could. Yeah, one of the things that we should just touch on real quick is this flex-based concept that Jesse Jenkins introduces. It is something that California as well, you know, misses, whether it's demand response and low control, but also just why we should pay for geothermal, why we should pay for some of these other renewables. Because I feel like as we've gotten to this mature place with wind and solar, there is a need for all of the renewable energy tools in the toolbox to be used and not just wind and solar. A quick break here to talk about our supporters of the show. We're brought to you by SunGrow. When SunGrow realized the severity of the COVID-19 outbreak earlier this year, it put together a task force to make sure that quick decision-making was happening in the face of uncertainty, and that paid off. SunGrow has been able to get its inverters to developers around the world on time and safely, while also protecting its factory workers from infection. As a leading supplier of solar inverters in the U.S., SunGrow has also leveraged its logistics network across the country to distribute face masks to communities in need. You can learn more at sungrowpower.com. 
We're also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power is situated to meet the growing global demand of energy storage. Core Power is building the first large-scale battery cell manufacturing facility in the U.S. owned by an American company. And once operational, the 1 million square foot facility will have 10 gigawatt hours of scalable manufacturing capacity. From sourcing critical minerals to battery recycling management, Core Power, with its partners, offers end-to-end energy storage management. Core Power's newly commissioned 2-gigawatt-hour Chinese factory is currently shipping product to customers for integration and testing, and you can find out more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E power.com. Renewables are now very big business, but they are still the smaller guys in lobbying. The American Petroleum Institute spent $6 million to lobby Congress in 2019, according to Open Secrets. Uh, the Solar Energy Industries Association spent $1.12 million. The American Wind Energy Association spent $1.16 million. And over the years, there have been some attempts to bring the many clean energy industries together under one lobbying umbrella. But with so many disparate interests, it wasn't the right recipe for agreement or for true lobbying power. But in a new development for renewables, more than 30 companies who often push their interests in Washington separately are now joining forces and have formed the American Clean Power Association. Clearly, it's um, another sign of the advancement of clean energy. But what does it mean? Is it going to actually be effective? It didn't take agriculture or biotech or fossil fuels this long to unite. So will this supposed united front change anything in Washington? Catherine, what's this group? Who's in it? Who's out? This is pretty interesting. It's 30 members so far. I'm sure they will grow. And there are big paying members. Nextera, Berkshire Hathaway, Avangrid, Google is a member, EDF Renewables, Invenergy, Orsted, Vestas. These are the big developers of wind and solar. And a lot of them have utility components. Um, And the advantage, of course, in any association is this collective action and shared vision. So if you're all in the same boat and you're rowing in the same direction toward the same goal, that is how you have power. And, you know, everybody's singing off the same song sheet. But is that going to always be the case? And certainly in the case of, you know, certain parts of either renewable technology sector or other parts of the grid, um, this is not going to be the association that will give them maybe that shared vision. But that kind of remains to be seen. Yeah. So, you know, I'm certainly um, more of an observer on this than I am one of the Titans that we were when I was at Sun Edison, but like I think that uh, it, it appears to me like this is the utility companies coming in and basically saying we need to be on both sides of the deal. So you know it's sort of heads utilities win, tails utilities win. So the people that are investing in this new entity is is the unregulated side of the utilities, right? Those are the people who who buy and own huge amounts of wind and solar. And then the regulated side, as we've learned from recent reports from EEI, are continuing to undermine clean energy through their membership at EEI. And so my sense is the goal here, as opposed to ACOR, let's say, which was supposed to be this big tent that was for everything against nothing, was you know, is really to try to create that muscle that stands up to EEI and API, I would say, the American Petroleum Institute. So, um, you know, they certainly haven't reached that, that that goal yet, but I think the aspiration is to be a heavyweight in Washington like API and EEI are. 
Yeah, I'm super interested in what they end up deciding to work on, especially at this time. So we're at this point where we're about to see if it's going to be a second Trump administration or there's going to be a Biden administration. If there's a Biden administration, there are just so many potential opportunities, especially if the Senate flips too, for new policies. And it'll be really interesting to see what this group ends up focusing on. When I ran the Gridwise Alliance, right, that was a smart good trade association back right when Obama was elected. And we were all singularly focused on the stimulus. And we didn't care if it funded, you know, synchrophasers or advanced metering. It didn't matter if it was smart grid and we got money for all those companies in smart grid it was great but once the stimulus passed we had a really hard time coming together because our interests were so diverse that it was hard to find something we could work on and if you have utilities in the mix they have just a very different set of priorities so it'll be interesting to see depending on how the election turns out what they end up fighting for well, it's 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 even more complicated than that, which is like, for instance, they have said very explicitly that they would deliberately not work on distributed generation because they cannot come to any sort of agreement on supporting distributed generation, right? So that's one of the reasons SIA didn't join, was that someone had to continue to work on residential and C&I solutions. Microgrids, all that stuff is excluded from this new organization, right? So anything that's like, you know, uh, behind the meter or anything that's low voltage is excluded, right? So they're really focused on utility-scale generation and transmission that would support utility scale generation. And so the macro grid stuff, a lot of that stuff will get in here. But even that, like you said, Catherine, I think, you know, as soon as they get free money, they may end up falling apart, right? Because a lot of these utilities want to build more wires, because that's how they rate based stuff. And so, um, you know, I don't know that they're going to push for smart wires, right? Where you're actually, you know, doing uh, dynamic load ratings or other things that actually gets more out of the existing grid, because I don't know that these utilities make a lot of money getting more out of the existing grid. So it's going to be interesting seeing how a lot of these folks stay together. The other thing I'd say is like, when you think about EEI and API, for as much as people complain about free money going to the oil and gas industry or the utility industry and how we need to cut them off from, you know, uh, subsidies. They are huge net tax payers to local, state, and federal governments. Um, I think we are becoming huge local, uh, well, we're definitely huge local taxpayers in terms of counties and farmers. We're not necessarily large state taxpayers, and we're definitely not large net taxpayers to the federal government. So the dynamics, I think, are a little bit different than API and EEI. And it'll be interesting to see how the messaging comes through from this new organization. Now, this is coming out of the American Wind Energy Association. I am very curious as to what this says about the market and their priorities and what they see as benefiting their organization. So solar surpassed wind in deployment last year. Um, clearly, a lot of the big players that are involved in WEA and these trade associations are doing both mega solar and wind deals. So what does it say about WEA and what they see as priorities going forward or what's happening actually out in the market to influence their decisions beyond wind? I think what you're seeing is all of these very high paying board members of AWEA are developing wind, but they're also developing big solar projects. Every single one of them are. And rather than having to pay two associations to do basically the same thing on the same policy for them. They thought, I think, that this would be a good way to be more efficient and more powerful by bringing in 
both solar and wind. Now, as Jagger said, the distributed side is really different. And and I would say another thing that associations can do, and API certainly does this, um, is something that maybe this association won't be focused on, which is more like codes and standards, market analysis, safety, workforce issues like that, that the distributed folks need an interconnection, certainly. Um, the distributed folks and people in storage and hydropower, all of those entities and those technologies and those market sectors really need a very different set of focal points for their association. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I do think there's a role for for each one of those separately. And what about the Solar Energy Industries Association? Uh, Why aren't they joining this? So I think they're going to be affiliated, but, you know, the distributed side has just a very different set of issues. You know, they're dealing with interconnection standards. They're dealing with safety, workforce issues that are very different from grid scale. Um, And I think that there is a place for them. There needs to be a place for them that doesn't fall under this big utility umbrella. There's also a money problem here, and I think we're going to have to figure out how to solve it. The distributed generation players don't spend enough money. So like SIA can't actually live just on the dues from the distributed generation folks because they all pay the minimum. They pay like a thousand bucks, three thousand bucks, five thousand bucks, whatever it is. And they reserve their bigger check sizes for their local SIA state chapters. Um, and so the dynamics with SIA um, is going to get funky. Um, I think, you know, like because the biggest payers on the board of SIA are the utility scale solar uh, members. And so I don't know how this is going to shake out. The other thing I would say is that, you know, there are a lot of what we call orphaned (laughs) uh, tax credits or orphaned uh, technologies. So these are fuel cells, um, you know, hydro, uh, geothermal, uh, you know, bioenergy. We're doing, obviously, you know, anaerobic digesters. So that's the American Biogas Council. There are a lot of these organizations who, frankly... I don't think we'll have a place with the American Clean Power Association. And so there's really no benefit to them merging into this group because I don't think they're going to get listed except for a comma around, hey, the tax credit should also include these technologies. And so my sense is they're going to stay as separate organizations because I don't think they believe this new organization is going to fight for them. Um, And so a lot of these dynamics I don't think are changed by this announcement. And so it'll it'll be something that we'll have to watch closely as to whether these guys are going to take seriously their rhetoric around really representing all of the decarbonization movement that's utility scale, or whether really they're just focused on solar and wind and transmission. Final question on this. I feel like I have to ask this type of question because we have two types of audiences listening to the show. One are the people inside the business or in clean energy politics or energy politics who are like who understand the inside baseball conversation and a lot of folks who are just trying to understand what's happening in this world. So Catherine, wh- why does this matter? Why are we talking about a shakeup in trade associations or this convergence of companies? Like why should people care and what are the consequences if any? I think the goal is certainly to combine their resources and become more politically powerful. So Senator Grassley from Iowa was the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, which, of course, is what 
mostly the wind and solar industry have been focused on, especially wind. And Berkshire Hathaway was very close to Grassley's office. And he is rolling off as chair of finance committee. So that committee is the most important to getting any tax issues done in the Senate, certainly. Um, but Senator Crapo from Idaho is going to is next in line. And I mean, that's Berkshire Hathaway all the way. So I do think they will still have a lot of political influence. It'll be interesting to see if they actually ramp up a PAC, you know, this political action committee that can spend a lot of money. For context, you said that API spent, I guess, $6 million. League of Conservation voters just announced their super PAC and is going to spend $100 million to defeat GOP members and get Joe Biden elected. So uh, there are relative sizes of PACs, and it's always been really hard to build PACs. I know from AWEA and SIA to build that funding is really, really difficult for companies. Um, but we'll see. That's I think that's their goal is to be politically um, more powerful than they are now. Let's go over to Texas now, where oil and gas are still very powerful, but solar and wind are becoming more so. What kind of energy do you associate most with Texas? It's probably fossil fuels, but now you can add solar to the mix. If you've ever driven the entire day it takes to get across West Texas, you've probably been asking, why didn't this happen earlier? And we're going to dig into that. But the big news of the moment is that the queue to get a new energy project hooked up to the Texas grid, also known as the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, is almost all green. As uh, Joel Surface put it, responding to a post by Jigger on LinkedIn, the interconnection queue is a snapshot of the future of energy in that state. So Texas is suddenly the biggest market for some solar developers. Its installed solar capacity is set to more than double this year and more than double again that in 2021. Jigger, what's happening there in Texas? Well, as we've talked about, you know, Texas is its own little country. And uh, they certainly operate their grid that way. Uh, so ERCOT uh, doesn't actually interconnect with any other grids uh, outside of Texas. And they have been, um, you know, running an experiment there for 20 years, which is uh, far different than some of the other grids around the, the country. So part of what they do is they are, you know, a little bit libertarian to the point of craziness. Um, and that means that everyone and anyone is welcome. It's all basically price-based. They have started more recently trying to pay people for other services that they provide. But you have free access to the grid. So if you have a backup diesel generator and the price clears, you can run it and sell power into it. If you have a backup natural gas generator, you can run it and make power from it. If you control 100,000 thermostats, you can turn them off and you can get paid for it within the ERCOT grid. So it's come one, come all, and sometimes it feels a little chaotic, and other times you you know bless the way that the market was created because it allows innovations that have reached this lower cost point free access to the grid. So in this case, solar is a very small percentage of ERCOT's grid. It's mostly wind on the renewable energy side. But lo and behold, solar is super cheap now, particularly in sunny, sunny places like Texas. And so they now can compete at today's wholesale prices in Texas. You know, solar, new solar projects can get to below two cents a kilowatt hour, which is really cost effective. So guess what? A lot of developers have taken land that they've been speculating on for 
the better part of 10 years. I remember, I remember people buying up choice um, interconnection positions and land in Texas 10 years ago for solar uh, when Joel Surface was still running, I think, the Austin incubator. And, uh, and now you've got you know, just gigawatts of it that's made it through. So there's all these classifications of where you are in the process. So if you take all the different classifications, there's roughly 128 gigawatts of projects that have been reported to ERCOT um, as in various stages of getting their permits and getting their approvals. To put that in perspective, there's 70 gigawatts of peak demand in ERCOT. So <laughs> that's more than all of the peak demand in ERCOT. Of that amount, 16 or 17 gigawatts of solar and wind projects are at the final stage. That means interconnection agreements approved, right? All safety approved, everything else approved. They are literally ready for construction. So that's 17 gigawatts of wind and solar projects, roughly eight gigawatts of wind and nine gigawatts of solar that are at the end of that process, right? And then there's another 20 or 30 gigawatts that are in the later stages of that process, right? And so you're in a situation where, you know, NERCOP predicted this in PowerPoint presentations four years ago, but you know, that you're in a situation where 90% of pretty much everything that gets added to the ERCOT grid over the next few years is going to be clean energy. Yeah, I talked to to two people in Houston who are operating on very different ends of the grid. One is Michael Skelly, whom we know from Superpower and the the trials and tribulations of trying to get transmission built. And I also talked to John Berger, who's the CEO of Sonova, which is distributed solar. And um, they both were all in on this. And Skelly said, as Jigger said, there are a lot of reasons to build in Texas. The Cost has dropped 40% in five years, but transmission has open access. Basically, all you got to do is pay for upgrades and off you go. You get interconnection really easily. There's a ton of resource. Because of retail competition, there's this hedging mechanism for volatility. Um, there is also increasing demand. So remember how we said Europe was not increasing in demand? Texas is. It's one of the only places where commercial and industrial demand is increasing, and then the costs are great. Permitting is easy. So there are a lot of reasons to build. Now, part of the trick will be there's a lot of resource in West Texas, and there are load centers in Eastern Texas. Um, And so how do we deal with this? And part of it, certainly, um, Berger was saying is like, we're going to see a lot of distributed rooftop solar as a result of that. And a penny can make a difference, um, because cost is so crucial right now. And because Houston has one of the highest load factors, every penny makes a difference. And so solar at this point is really a winning proposition. And they both see this as uh, long-term, certainly knocking out coal, possibly knocking out natural gas and um, being around to stay. Right. But today, solar only makes up 2% of generation. Natural gas makes up 44%. Coal is still significant at 16%. So there is still a lot of runway here for solar, but capacity is being added very, very quickly. Yeah, remember the last three years, Texas has had the lowest reserve margins in the country, right? So in August, they've had these spikes where the power prices get up to $9,000 a megawatt hour. Um, And that will all be solved when this technology comes online. So when you get another 17 gigawatts of wind and solar that are in the final approval processes for construction, um, 
that will add something on the order of 20% of the peak demand, actually almost 25% of the peak demand of the Texas grid in wind and solar. The other thing I'd say is there's 17 gigawatts of battery storage that's in the interconnection queue. And I would suggest that that practically 100% of all of the solar that gets added to the grid will be co-located with batteries. And the reason they're co-located with batteries is because the Texas grid is unforgiving. Like the prices go up and down and sometimes they're negative. And I think people will start making decisions on a 15-minute basis as to whether they're actually discharging into the grid or whether they're discharging into batteries and storing that power for two hours and then discharging later when the prices are healthier. And I think you're just going to see the level of competency is going to be similar to, for people who may not be familiar, LS Power, which is, you know, real dominant uh, private equity firm in the space who owns a lot of natural gas capacity, who now owns Sea Power and some of these other players. Um, You know, they used to go in and just buy merchant natural gas facilities. In the wind and solar space, we've all been addicted to having long-term power purchase agreements. A lot of these plants are going to be built practically merchant. They might have five-year hedges from insurance companies to be able to satisfy the tax equity um, for five years. But then after that, they're going to be bidding different prices at different times of the day and using battery storage to help them do that. So I think you're seeing solar and wind enter a whole new world in Texas. And it's an exciting new world because it looks and smells a lot like what natural gas traders know well. And it's just something that really brings a lot of those folks who are excited in Houston into our world. Yeah. And it's really based on the way their market is structured, not based on state subsidies, which they don't have. They don't have net metering. You know, there have been programs in Austin and San Antonio, which have been capped. But, you know, this is all just free market in Texas. And as that works out right now, that's really good for solar. Let's go to free electrons. Jigger, what's your free electron this week? So Bloomberg came out with their uh, final accounting from last year's deployment. And uh, the results are shocking. Globally, we installed 120 gigawatts of solar, about 61 gigawatts of wind. And then we installed nuclear, small hydro, geothermal, biomass, and other renewable forms of energy. And about 80% of everything that got installed brand new last year was clean. 80%. So we're up to about 27% of everything produced in the world being clean. And in general, I think this bodes well, you know, for for where we're headed, right? I think a lot of folks want to look in the rearview mirror, which I understand. But when 80% of everything that's coming on new is clean, it means that we're headed for decarbonization. Wow, solar capacity doubled wind. Doubled wind, 120 gigawatts. And interestingly enough, India surpassed the U.S. last year in terms of deployment of solar. So India was at 11.6 gigawatts, and and the U.S. was about 11.3 gigawatts. Wow. Catherine, what's your free electron? Yeah, so a report was issued yesterday by the CFTC, which is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. It's a government entity that looks at financial risk um, across sectors, and they uh, released a report that they 
their committee voted unanimously, 34 to nothing, to adopt this report called Managing Climate Risk in the U.S. Financial System. And basically, they give 53 recommendations to mitigate their risks to financial markets that are posed by climate change. But their conclusions are that climate change poses a major risk to the stability of the U.S. financial system and its ability to sustain our economy. They say climate risks may exacerbate financial system vulnerability that have little to do with climate change, but exacerbate everybody else's vulnerability. They also said that U.S. financial regulators have to recognize that climate change poses serious emerging risks to the financial system, and they should move urgently and decisively to measure and understand and address these risks. And they're saying, interestingly, for me, the policy person, that existing statutes already provide U.S. financial regulators with wide-ranging and flexible authority that could be used to do this. So I found this really interesting. You can find it on cftc.gov. I think all of our friends in California already see this out their window. I mean, they're estimating that the cost of wildfires this year and climate change-related disasters in California is going to be a trillion dollars this year in California. I mean, that's almost the size of California's GDP. It's just shocking to me how, you know, like, this is like a day late and a dollar short from the CFTC. It's only a matter of time before Trump's limo driver or hairstylist is appointed to a role at the CFTC and then they shut that report down or those recommendations down. Oh, my. <laughs> um, so, look, the wildfires are a complete disaster there in California. California has gone through this uh, historic heat wave. And the folks over at Media Matters, which have been tracking media coverage of climate change for well over a decade... And during times of, you know, historic extreme weather, they look at how media outlets talk about climate change in the context of extreme weather. And it's usually very, very poor. And they did an assessment of the last few months of coverage uh, as it relates to wildfires out in the West. And they found that 4% of TV news coverage about wildfires talked about climate change. Um, even mentioned the phrase climate change. And this is unsurprising for anyone who has seen these Media Matters reports. I mean, we almost never see climate change contextualized in these conversations about hurricanes or droughts or uh, wildfires. Um, sometimes it spikes a little bit if there's like a major report. But in general, journalists are really afraid to talk about this stuff. And it's this residual problem that relates to how... Republicans have politicized the conversation and made journalists fear that if they talk about climate change, somehow they're going to seem political. Um, and you have news outlets that are ramping up their climate coverage, like the New York Times, for example. The, the Times has just done an incredible job hiring some of the best journalists in the world to talk about climate change. But you still see some of their reporting on extreme weather never mention climate change at all. And so you still kind of have these green ghettos inside um, or these climate change ghettos inside news outlets. And it's very difficult for journalists to wrap their head around how to talk about this issue. Um, so, you know, I, I think... There's also this concern about attribution science, too, and the attribution science is getting a lot better. We can statistically say that certain wildfires or droughts are much more likely because of climate change. The data crunching is just incredible now, but journalists still feel like they can't 
because of the uncertainty around attribution, they can't talk about it. So what you see is dismal coverage again and again and again, despite where we are. And I, I want to pe- turn people's attention to that Media Matters report because this situation is not changing. Well, maybe Trump will neutralize it by, as he is claiming, being the number one environmentalist since Teddy Roosevelt, because he banned offshore oil drilling in areas where he wants people's votes. I mean, maybe the media will start uh, actually questioning where climate change exists because he's starting to. No, it's. I mean, I honestly think it's disqualifying. And we need to start actually just calling out these journalists and saying it's disqualifying. Like, you're not even, you cannot be considered a good journalist if you continue to misrepresent, um, you know, these kinds of stories. It just doesn't make any sense. You're not informing the reader. And so at, at some point, like, I just think it's disqualifying. And I don't, I don't have respect for journalists that screw this up on a regular basis, not in 2020. And it's very much a, an institutional problem within outlets, even those that are covering climate change very well. Oftentimes, those environmental or climate change reporters are isolated from the rest of the organization. And because climate change impacts every piece of the world now, our economics reporting, the way businesses operate, uh, you know, city zoning, uh, extreme weather and science reporting. I mean, climate change is really infused into all those stories, but yet still people see climate change as an isolated story. And it's very much an institutional problem in the way people think through how it should sift through the newsroom. But you're being intellectual about it. I think it's just because the folks who don't want them to say climate change have said, if you say climate change, I'm not going to be a source for you anymore. I think we need to start doing the same thing and say, we're not going to be a source for you either. If you're going to not going to say climate change, then screw you. I'm not going to take your phone calls anymore. I've, I've started doing that for reporters that call me. I'm like, you're a terrible reporter. I'm not talking to you anymore. And like, it's just like, I, it's just, it, we're done. Like, I don't, if they don't actually understand what their journalism degree means, then I don't need to I talk to them. I hope you anymore. never say that to me, Jigger. Please take my phone calls. <laughs> no, I, no, but like, I have called you out when I thought you did both sides stuff. And like, and you and I have had tiffs, right? And I think we should be able to have those conversations. I don't think you're one of those people. But at the end of the day, like, there are a lot of people who are in our community that we let them get away with this. You know, and I I don't think we should let them get away with it. California is literally burning. They're 2,000% higher amount of acreage that burned this year than last year. That's unsustainable. I, I just, I don't understand at what point do we say to people that this is our Pearl Harbor moment. I mean, we've had like 17 Pearl Harbor moments. This is another one. If they don't recognize it, they called it a nuclear winter. What the hell kind of construction is that? A nuclear winter? No, it's climate change. That is going to do it for the show, folks. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Sean Marquand mixes the show. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my co-hosts. And uh, I am the, the executive producer and co-host. We appreciate you listening, of course. We just are delighted that you tune in to us every week. And if you want to help us with uh, growing the show, then send out the word on social media or send a link to a friend and colleague. And of course, leave us a rating and review on Apple or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can get us anywhere you download your shows, whatever app you use, we're there. And you can go to greentechmedia.com as well to see additional show notes and stuff on the companies and people that we are talking about every week. And you can find us here next time, as always on this feed. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon.